Welcome to the New Life Podcast. Here we want you to experience the grace of God. So through this sermon, we hope to come alongside you as you grow in your relationship with Jesus. To learn more about New Life, please visit our website at newlifeonline.org. Here's today's message. Uh, my name is Aaron Yoder. I'm a friend of Brian and Jess's and uh, just honored, delighted to be with you. Uh, my wife Janice is here with me and our worshiping body is at Grace Church. And uh, just consider you guys uh, co-workers in the Lord in our community. And I hope this morning is encouraging for you. Um, I know that you've been studying through the book of Mark. And so for those of you who have physical Bibles with you, we'll be opening to Mark 3. If you've got a digital Bible, that works too. Uh, if you can open your app to Mark chapter 3, that's where we'll be this morning. Before we get there, I want to do something that Pastor Brian would not do because he's too humble. Um, and that is to point out that this is Pastor Appreciation Month. So in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, it says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of a double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And this passage, inspired by the Lord, reminds us that for those that labor for preaching and teaching in their local church, that we need to honor such people. And so with this month, I just encourage you, I know a little bit of there's been some difficult things happening in the life of the body, some burdens that you've all been carrying, especially Pastor Brian. So honor him, love on him. For those that are also elders and leaders in the church, love on them this month specifically, write them notes of encouragement, and I know that would go a long way for them to persevere in the work of ministry, all right? Brian did not pay me or say me, tell me to say that, um, but uh, I just love that man, so uh, just uh, keep honoring him, keep praying for him. Um, as we go to the Word of God, I would invite us to stand, and we'll be reading from Mark 3. If you would, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to begin in verse 7 and take us through verse 34. And as I do, I encourage you to just imagine that you're listening to these words for the very first time. Uh, perhaps uh, this actually is the first time you've been in Mark chapter 3, but for those of you who haven't, uh, there have been there before, I just encourage you to consider listening with brand new ears. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make it known. And he went up from the mountain, he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they may be with him, and that he may send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gained the name Boanerges, that is, the sons of thunder, and Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind." 
And the scribes who had come down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whoever blasphemes they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And Jesus' mother and his brothers came, and they were standing outside, of, and they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of the church. We thank you for the tremendous honor it is to come in your name, to worship, to sing, to pray, to study your word. Father, I pray that whatever words that are of me that would be forgotten today, but anything that is of your spirit, Lord, open our mind and our ears to be attentive to that. Father, I pray for Pastor Brian that as he brings your word at the other campus, that you'd give him anointing and wisdom and strength. Continue to bless him and the leadership here, Lord Jesus, as they navigate and lead, that you would honor them, that you would lead them, that you would strengthen them. And Father, for all of us as we're gathered in this place, help us to not leave this place the same. Change us by your spirit for your glory and for your honor. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people say, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I know that you have been studying through the book of Mark. And uh, over the past couple of weeks, you've been trying to define, seeking to define what does it mean to be a disciple? Or what does discipleship look like? And I believe that you've identified discipleship or being a disciple as someone who is with Jesus. Is that right? Am I tracking so far? Yes. Being a disciple is someone who is with Jesus. Discipleship is about being with Jesus. It's not necessarily about this list of rules of what you should and should not do. It's not necessarily about the religious tradition that you have been brought in or trying to explore. It's about simply resting at the feet of Jesus and knowing his heart. And we do that by worshiping. We do that by praying. We do that by studying God's word. We do that in lots of different ways, but I hope that over the last couple of weeks that you have spent extra time delighting in the presence of Jesus. Because whatever lies beyond that, in this text and into the rest of Mark, if we're not delighting in Jesus and resting in him and building upon that, that whatever comes may feel like religion and it's not supposed to be. Even the things that I will be leading us in the text today may feel like religion if we are not resting first and delighting in Jesus. Does that make sense? We are to first put ourselves at a posture that says, Jesus, above all things, I just want to be with you. 
I want to listen to you. I want to follow you. That's what discipleship, that's where it begins. What I'd like to do this morning is to build on that by leading us in the text to see here that Jesus calls and commissions ordinary people into the family business. That Jesus calls and commissions ordinary people into the family business. Now, what do I mean by the family business? Other pastors and speakers may use the phrase, the mission of God. That God is in the business of doing stuff in the world right now. And it involves drawing people to him. It involves leading them out of darkness and into light. It involves taking those that are hostile towards God and making them brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God. And we're using that phrase family business this morning because I do want us to think about this as a corporate, as a community effort. This is something that we're in together. So Jesus is calling and commissioning ordinary people like you and me into the family business. Now, as we get started this morning, my hope is that Jesus gives us, me and you, corporately and individually direction. But if we're to receive that, we have to first ask the question, do we let anybody speak authoritatively into our lives? Or in other words, does anyone really have authority to redirect our lives? We live at a time in North America that it's really easy to push back against authority. Isn't it true? Just for example, there are white signs that exist on the side of the road that have numbers on them. And oftentimes when we see these numbers, we say, those numbers don't apply to me. Right? Is that true? We have a tendency to say authority doesn't, I don't need to respond to authority in this way. Now, certainly there are people that do speak that we don't have to listen to. For example, my wife and I have four children, and uh, they're the ages of 15 and 13, and we have twin boys that are seven, and we have neighbor kids that often are part of our family. They come into our house all the time, and we love it. We've got this three-year-old neighbor boy that comes in. Does anybody have three-year-olds right now? Please, we need to be praying for them, right? Three-year-olds are just that precious moment in life when like the sinful nature comes out and they can be cute in one moment and terrifying in the next moment, right? So this three-year-old comes into our house and hangs out and even did this yesterday, and he knows that around three o'clock in the afternoon is snack time at the Yoder household. You can go to the cupboard, you can get a snack and have some goldfish or whatever, So he came up to me and he said, he's very polite, Mr. Yoder, is it snack time yet? I said, no, you got to go back and keep playing. Got about 30 more minutes. Okay, thank you. But just suppose that he walked up to me and he said, Mr. Yoder, my tummy is telling you it's snack time. So I want a snack right now. Welcome to three-year-olds, right? Would I need to listen to the authority of his stomach? No, and I don't. (laughs) So there are certain people who speak that we don't have to listen to, right? can set that aside. The question for us this morning is when Jesus speaks, do we need to listen to him? Well, it all comes down to our understanding of who Jesus is. If Jesus is 
akin to the rumblings of a three-year-old's stomach, then we don't need to listen to him. But if Jesus is something much greater than that, then perhaps we do. So Mark, in his gospel, has been slowly laying out who is Jesus, what is his identity, who is this man. And so far, Mark's gospel hasn't given us much of a glimpse into who really he is. He is seen in Mark chapter 1 as an incredible teacher. I mean, people are just flocking to him because they are enamored. He's not teaching like the Pharisees. There is an authority here. And then Jesus is also healing them. So we see him as an authoritative speaker. We see him as a healer. And as I believe just a couple of weeks ago, you also studied that Jesus was saying that he also forgives sins. So that's about the extent of what we know if we only have the Gospel of Mark up to this point about Jesus, that he can draw a crowd, that he can heal people, and he can forgive sins. In our text this morning, we're given some perspectives about who else he could be based upon family and the scribes. Would you take a look at Mark chapter 3, verse 20? We'll go and we'll look at the other verses ahead of of that, but we're going to start in verse 20 here. So then he, being Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. How did Jesus' own family perceive him? That he was crazy. Now, this likely did not include Mary, Mary, as you know, was kind of present for Jesus' birth, (laughs) knew his origin. We celebrate that story at Christmas. She would have known that, but Jesus also had four brothers and a couple of sisters. We learn some of their names in Mark chapter 6. And Jesus, being the oldest sibling in the Jewish culture, would have had certain responsibilities that in their minds he was neglecting. Jesus would have been one that would have been carrying on the family business after Joseph passed away, and Jesus was not doing that. Jesus also had no formal education as a rabbi, and yet he was doing that. And so in their minds, their older brother was neglecting their family, drawing a crowd, and had no authority to do so. Therefore, they thought he is crazy, and we're going to try to rescue him from his madness. That's one perspective that we see here. Another perspective is given by the scribes in verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul or Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. Now the scribes of this day, they were somewhat like the seminary professors. They would have been those that you learned religious education from. They were the professors, the doctorates. And they were saying that Jesus is not only a bad man, that he's an evil man man, and you should stay away from him. Now, Jesus goes on to say, this doesn't even make rational sense. I'm clearly casting out demons. How can Satan cast out Satan? A house divided against itself cannot stand. The religious leaders had grown so hard-hearted in the work of God that when God moved, they called it evil. And there is a tendency especially in the Old Testament where we see when, when, when God is moving, there are some that say that's bad. And then when bad things are happening, they say that's good. The religious leaders, the scribes particularly, they were, were seeing that. When Jesus was healing, when Jesus was interacting with people, when he was forgiving sins, 
They did not see the family business of God. Instead, they said, this is demonic. And Jesus calls that blaspheming the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 29, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For, it's explaining what's happening here, they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So one perspective is that Jesus had lost his mind, and that's what his brothers thought of him. And the other was that Jesus is a liar, a deceiver. He's actually working for the prince of darkness. And of course, we know as a church body that neither one of those perspectives are right. But just suppose for a moment that we're talking with somebody who lives now, who doesn't attend church, and knows a little bit about Jesus, how would they perceive him? Would they see him as a liar? Would they see him as a lunatic? Probably not. If you've had interactions with those that know of Jesus but don't attend church and are not active disciples, they probably put him in a third category. They probably say that Jesus was simply a good moral teacher. And it's okay if you follow after him. It's, it's fine. He teaches good morality. He's just simply a good moral teacher. But C.S. Lewis, as he was reflecting, I believe, upon Mark 3, he says you can't arrive at a conclusion that Jesus was a good moral teacher. Listen to what C.S. Lewis wrote in the book Mere Christianity. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Oh, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's just one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, which is what his brothers thought, on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg. Or else, he would be the devil of hell, which is what the scribes were saying. But you must make your choice. In other words, this third option of a great moral teacher doesn't make sense. C.S. Lewis would go on to say, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit, him, spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. As C.S. Lewis was reflecting upon the nature of Jesus and his identity, he recognized in this text, I believe, that there are some that perceive Jesus as a lunatic. There are some that say that he is demon-possessed, but there's a third category that we as believers recognize that he is the Son of God. And in fact, Mark wants to draw our attention to that. Look at verse 11. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make it known. In this chapter, these three different perspectives of Jesus are present here. Some saw, saw him as a lunatic, some saw him as a liar, and the demons are calling him Lord, the Son of God. Now, when we think about that phrase, Son of God, we probably immediately think of someone who is divine, like Jesus, God in the flesh. But at the time, the phrase Son of God was a politically charged statement. Remember back whenever you were a child and you would kind of compare yourself to other children? I mean, I did that. Maybe you didn't do that. But you have a conversation with your buddy, like saying, 
I'm better at basketball. And they would say, no, I'm better at basketball. And, no, I'm better, I'm better, I've got skills. And all of a sudden, one of you says, well, I'm better times infinity. When you're in elementary school and you use the infinity clause, what do you mean? You're king. You're the best. No one can go higher than that. And in fact, if you try to counter infinity with like infinity times infinity, an elementary school said, there's no such thing as that. You got infinity. That's the highest thing. Now, why do I mention that? It's because in the Roman culture, there were rankings of positions. And the Son of God was the highest. So Caesar Augustus, before him was Julius Caesar. Caesar Augustus was the Caesar that was in place when Jesus was born, but Julius Caesar was ahead of that. So prior to the AD transition in the, the, the late BCs. And Julius Caesar, after he died, was seen as divine. People started to call him a god. And so Caesar Augustus and the Caesars that would follow him were then described as the sons of God or the sons of the God. Does that make sense? Are you following with me? So those that were in positions of leadership, maybe a governor or a prefect or a, a centurion, all had their rankings. And then there was Caesar, but then there was this other title that was given that was even considered higher than Caesar, and that was son of God. And so when the demons here are saying that to Jesus, they are saying, he's got the title infinity. No one is higher than him. That's a remarkable statement. And Mark, as an author here, wants to make sure that his readers know that. There's three different times that he specifically names who Jesus is in Mark chapter 1. His prelude is saying, the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ who is the Son of God. He mentions it here as people are trying to debate who is this Jesus person. He says that even the demons are saying he's the Son of God. And then there's that remarkable moment at the cross in Mark chapter 15 when the Roman centurion said, truly, this man was the Son of God. That title is only mentioned three times in the Gospel of Mark, and he's making clear this is how Mark perceives him because that's indeed who Jesus is. So before we go any further, I want you to consider who do you believe Jesus to be? Just ignore the light show. It's cool. <laughs> who do you believe Jesus to be? A liar, a lunatic, or Lord? Now, we're going to move into the next part where we see Jesus calling and commission ordinary people into the family business. Would you take a look at verse 13? And Jesus went up on a mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Now, we know from Luke's accounts that Jesus actually spent the entire night in prayer. And as he came down the mountain, he began to draw these men to him, he appointed the twelve, whom he named to be the apostles, and they came to him. Now, if this is our first reading of this text, we may presume that Jesus kind of just entered a city, began to randomly call out people's names, and they, like robots, followed him. No, this was not Jesus' first interaction with these men. John chapter 1 gives us his first interaction with the disciples, which probably took place over a year before this text. In John chapter 1, there had been this movement of disciple-making among John the Baptist, 
and a couple of these men had followed him. And then when John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world, they started to follow Jesus, but just kind of at a part-time basis. Jesus had given them this invitation, Come and see where I'm staying. Come and see what I'm doing. Follow me. And some of them did, about six of them. Some time passes, and then in Mark uh, chapter 1, you guys have already studied this, that Simon and Andrew were casting their nets, and then Jesus at that moment said, would you come and follow me? And it may have been at that moment where those two brothers started to follow Jesus maybe full-time, where they had been doing it part-time before. But here was a specific moment in Mark 3 where Jesus is saying, men, you have been following me in some kind of part-time basis, but now it's time to go all in. Now is the time that I'm going to teach you and I'm going to instruct you what it is that you're going to be doing as my disciples. And so he called them. And the first thing that he called them to was simply to be with Jesus. The first thing that Jesus calls his disciples to do even now is simply to be with him. We can't forget that, brothers and sisters. We can follow Jesus We can obey his teachings, but there's something significant about simply lingering at his feet and being with him. I've been so blessed to hear over the past, I guess, couple of weeks that you guys spent some time in specific prayer and fasting, right? Kind of just on behalf of the congregation. That's so good. There's something significant about disciples of Jesus saying, you know what, Lord? Today, I could be doing all of these things, but right now, I just want to be with you. I just want to soak in your presence. I just want to delight in knowing who you are even deeper. And so if you've created maybe some brand new postures over the last couple of weeks of just lingering at the feet of Jesus, keep doing that. Keep doing that. Jesus was inviting his disciples to first just be with him. Now, maybe you haven't taken that call to be with Jesus in a more intentional way seriously and Perhaps for you, it's because you're worried about being with Jesus may be a source of condemnation upon your soul, or he may give you something that's too heavy for you to bear. I don't know how you understand Jesus to be, but there is one place in all of the New Testament where Jesus makes his heart known. There's an author and pastor by the name of Dane Ortland who, as he was ministering with people, recognized that we have all kinds of strange perceptions of what it means to linger with Jesus. And he wanted to point out Matthew 11, verse 28, 29, and 30. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Is spending time with Jesus a burdensome thing? No, it's never supposed to be. How does Jesus describe his heart here? Gentle and lowly. As disciples come and come to his feet and linger before him, whether in prayer or in his word or in the context of community, Jesus' heart in those moments is that we would find rest for our souls. That the burdens that we carry up to his feet would all of a sudden become a little bit lighter. Why? Because Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. And so before we go any further, I just want to encourage you, 
If you have felt at all called or commissioned by Jesus, linger with him. Don't do anything else until you've done that. Now the disciples got a unique chance to linger with Jesus in ways that we can't quite this side of heaven. They got to eat with him. They got to sleep in the general vicinity of where Jesus slept. They got to see where Jesus interacted with disciples, with the crowds, with demons, with those that needed healing. But then Jesus does something else. Not only does he invite them to be with him, he also says that he's going to send them out. That's remarkable in the Jewish context. I mean, they had hardly been with Jesus at all, maybe some full-time for a year, maybe some just part-time for a year. But all of a sudden, Jesus is saying, not only are you following me, but I'm also going to commission you to do something miraculous. This is incredible. He's going to commission and send them out. Flip over a couple of pages to Mark chapter 6. You'll get a chance to study this more in depth in the weeks to come, but we'll see what this looks like. It says in verse 12 in Luke, or Mark chapter 6, that they would go out and proclaim that people should repent. So these disciples are being sent out with a message. We're told in other gospel accounts that they will talk about the kingdom of God and that they're going to offer this good news of this kingdom that will include the message of repentance. But as I looked at that, it began to cause in my mind, what did the disciples actually know about the kingdom of God? Or what did they actually know about Jesus? And the reality is they did not know very much at all. I mean, just think for a moment, what do we know about Jesus? Well, we could probably talk about Good Friday. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We could probably talk about Easter Sunday, how he rose from the dead. We could probably talk about how he ascended to the Father and sent his Holy Spirit. The disciples knew none of those things. What did they know? They knew that Jesus perhaps is the Messiah. They knew that Jesus offered forgiveness of sins. And they knew that their lives had been transformed because of what Jesus was doing with them right now. Jesus was preparing to send these guys out with pretty much next to nothing. And yet, as a result of that, lives became transformed. My wife and I have twin boys that are seven, as I mentioned earlier. And my twins probably know more about Jesus' earthly ministry right now than the disciples did as they were being sent out to the mission field. That's crazy. But here's this man that we've met who might be the Messiah who forgives sins and transforms lives. That's all I got. But that's good news, and the world needed to hear that. So, brothers and sisters, when we consider ourselves being sent out into the world, sometimes we believe that we must have all of the answers to all the questions before we go out anywhere. Is that true? No. The disciples didn't know very much. Or sometimes we convince ourselves that I've got to get my life all together before I go spread the good news of the gospel. Is that true? (laughs) Do we know anything about Peter and James and John? Were their lives all together? No. But Jesus calls and commissions ordinary people to be sent out. And they did. He sent them out also with this strategy. They were to go out in pairs 
It's important to note that going out into a world of darkness should be done in community. And he also sent them out to depend upon ordinary radical hospitality. They were to go and stay with people. Now, in our context, it may be the opposite of that. It may mean that we invite people into our homes instead of us going and interrupting somebody else's family life. But there's something very significant about that, just doing life together. So my wife and I own a business in Arizona, and every once in a while we have their employees, our employees down there, come and fly and stay with us in our home. And our home is probably a lot like yours. We've got craziness that happens, and we try to, at times, eat together at night. That's kind of a priority. We try to make that happen as many evenings as we possibly can. We say a quick prayer, we eat together, talk about the day, and then go about the rest of the evening activities. Well, we have had young women who are working in the store in Arizona come up here and stay with us, and as they eat around the table, later will express they have never experienced that before in their life. They have never sat at a table with a family and eaten in a way that's calm and peaceful and loving. And so we may think that some of the things in our life which are messy and chaotic are not a witness when they absolutely can be. If we have been with Jesus and we're using our home as being a mission field, inviting people who don't know Jesus, we are being sent out and God can do profound things with that. Jesus goes on and does one other thing. He also calls and commissions these men to have authority. It says to cast out demons. Now, I want to focus on just the fact that he's giving them authority. It also says in other gospel accounts that he has given them authority to heal. Um, so certainly, they, they just were given this an amount of responsibility to speak into areas that they could not otherwise speak into. And, you know, casting out demons seems kind of a strange thing for us as we live in the Midwest because we're probably unfamiliar with a lot of that kind of work. Um, we're told in Second Peter that demons are those fallen angels that fell with Satan. They're chained to hell, and so their destiny is fixed. But we also learn in 1 Corinthians um, that wherever pagan worship is happening, demons are attached to that. So in other words, there are places in the world where people are actively worshiping idols and demons will be part of that equation. It does happen in parts of the United States. Certainly there are parts in other parts of the world. For example, Nepal, there are people that live in Nepal that actively worship idols and demons, knowing, willingly. And Jesus was giving them authority to deal with that kind of oppression. Now in our context... We are given authority over sin. We can say no to sin by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we're given authority to confront the lies of Satan. And the Apostle Paul gives the direction to the church through the armor of God analogy. And we're not going to unpackage this much, but I just want to point us to it for a moment. The Lord says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. In other words, we do have spiritual authority over the lies of Satan. You guys recognize that we live at a time that the culture and the landscape of our world is changing. Do you guys believe the North American context has changed quite a bit in the last maybe 10, 20 years? 
And the reality is that um, what we perceive to be active Christianity is becoming smaller and smaller. So the Pew Research Center has done studies on Christianity over the decades. And right now, um, one of the most recent studies they found is only one in four Americans are Christians, meaning saved by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Not earning salvation, but saved by grace. One in four. There's an author by the name of John S. Dickerson who wrote a book entitled The Great Evangelical Recession. He was a journalist, a well-known journalist who became a pastor, and he began to dig deeper into stats like the one that I just said. And this is what he found. He said, if we define Christianity in this way, saved by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ, actively involved in a church whenever they possibly can be, and someone who believes that it's appropriate to share the gospel, believing in the authority of God's word, that the amount of Christians in that category may be around 8% of the United States. That equates to the state of New York State being Christian and all of the other 49 states being the places that we need to reach. And in the midst of that, Satan feeds lies that our world easily gobbles up. And so as Christians, we have a mission field, and there is work for us to do. But the scriptures remind us that our battle is not against other people. Even if they're spouting lies, even if they would seek to harm us, our battle is against these spiritual powers behind that. As Christians, we live in a world that is easily divisive, that it's easy for us to look at another nationality or another people group and say they are our enemy. But that's not true. The real work that we have is to engage for the sake of the gospel. For how you transform the world is first by transforming a heart. And once the heart is transformed, the kingdom begins to become seen and known. So Jesus sends out the disciples. He gives them authority and he sends them out, all inviting them to be with him. What I'd like for us to consider this morning is that this text and this application is indeed for us. But how do I know that's the case? It's possible to read something in the New Testament and say this applies to us directly and that's not true at all. We can inappropriately contextualize scripture. So how do I know that Jesus is calling us right now in the 21st century to be with him, to be sent out, and to have authority? Well, one of the reasons is because of Jesus' interaction with his mother and brothers. Look at verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came and were standing outside, and they said to him, and they called out to him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them and said, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Who, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. In other words, Jesus is saying that the family of God, the business of what God is doing in the world, is big enough that it includes those that are willing to obey what Jesus says. And what has Jesus said to the church? Turn to Matthew 28. Jesus said to the church, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, for surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The very same three directives that Jesus gave the disciples there is present in the Great Commission, which directs all churches and all Christians, or at least ought to. Being with Jesus, being sent out, and having authority. And so is this for us? It is. It's remarkable that we serve a Jesus who calls and commissions ordinary people into the family business. But it gets even more remarkable. Jesus doesn't just call and commission ordinary people. He calls and commissions sinful people. I stand up here and present the word of God as best as I can, and I am not a perfect person. Do you have your life all together? Probably not either. Does Jesus still call and commission you to talk about his grace to those that don't know? Yes. Is the mission field ripe ahead of us? As Jesus told his disciples, look up your eyes. Look to the mission field. Yes. So consider this as you study the book of Mark that Jesus wants to do something in your life, not just for your sake, but also for the sake of those that don't know him. He went as far in Matthew chapter 5 to say, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Therefore, let your light so shine before others that he may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So as we worship the Lord together in just a moment and as we kind of linger in prayer, here's the question that I have for you. Are you willing to let Jesus, as the authority, redirect your life into the family business? Are you willing to let Jesus, as the authority, redirect your life into the family business? That's what he wants to do. We live in the midst of a time where there is a need for us to be a light to the world. And if you're one that says, yeah, but all I know are Christians, it may be time for you to make some new relationships. As a church body, I'm so excited that you guys are focusing on the teachings of Jesus. and I have the opportunity to get a, get a glimpse into what's happening in other churches, and I promise you, the churches are not full to the brim. There are spaces for more people because we still need to take the message to those that have no hope. Amen? So brothers and sisters, consider yourself commissioned and called by Jesus to be with him, to be sent, and have authority.